Okay, thanks for joining me, everybody. Chuck Morse and my guest is Dan Kennedy. Dan's the author of The Return of the Moguls, of Jeff Bezos and John Henry are remaking newspapers for the 21st century. There's my copy, Dan. And I congratulate you for writing it. It's a great book. Thank you so much, Chuck. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. And you're also a regular at Beat the Press at WGBH. You're a longtime journalist in the Boston area. You're a professor at Northeastern University School of Journalism. Dan, talk a little bit for starters about your own journalism background. I know that you started out as a beat reporter. Just how did you get in the business? And briefly, how has it changed from the time you got in till today? Well, um, in addition to teaching at Northeastern, I'm an alumnus. And Northeastern is very much known for its co-op program. Uh, so I've actually been working in uh, journalism since 1975, when I got my first co-op job at the Woonsocket Call, mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, in Rhode Island. And uh, when I graduated from Northeastern, I got a job at the Daily Times Chronicle in Woburn, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. uh, still going strong, still owned by the Haggerty family. And uh, I actually stayed there for about 10 years, um, covering a variety of different types of local stories uh, I covered the Woburn toxic waste trial in federal court. Oh, yeah, which uh, was moving after a while afterwards. That, that, was, that was made, well, it was made into a fantastic book yes. by Jonathan Haar and mm -hmm. a not very good movie. Okay. Uh, but if you ever, anybody, any of your listeners or viewers ever has a chance to read uh, a civil action, I highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. And um, left the Daily Times, kicked around for a couple of years. Uh, I even ended up doing page production for uh, the pilot, the uh, the Boston's Catholic paper for about for a few months right. and then joined the Phoenix in 1991 and was there until 2005 when I left to come to Northeastern. Uh, I worked initially as an editor and starting in 1994. Uh, I became the Phoenix's media columnist, which is what I did from uh, that point on. Let's, before we bring things to the present, I want to talk a little bit about the Boston Phoenix. It started in the 70s, kind of an alternative paper for the alternative movement of the 60s, along with the real paper. They both competed and then merged. Um, and it became a pretty big concern with a with radio station. I think they had some other media properties. Uh, Steve Mindich just passed away. He was the founder of the Boston Phoenix. And the Phoenix itself closed its doors, I think, maybe three or four years ago. Um, what happened? Well, yeah, the Phoenix, uh, what the paper that became the Phoenix was founded by Stephen Mindich in 1966. Right. And uh, it was one of the great all-weeklies uh, in the country. And uh, uh in two, as you say, in 2013, the Phoenix closed its doors. And unfortunately, what happened to a lot of alt-weeklies, which uh, most of them have shrunk beyond recognition, a number of them have gone out of business, um, they ended up in a real dilemma. Uh, the advertising had pretty much disappeared. Uh, they were free papers and they were free websites. And mm -hmm. so if you kind of look at those three legs, you don't really see any money attached to any of them. Uh, so at the time the Phoenix went under, it still had about 130,000 uh, circulation, which is quite healthy. Uh, but um, 
it uh, it just couldn't it, it couldn't sustain itself because of that. Uh, interestingly enough, a lot of the story that I tell in the Return of the Moguls is about how a new generation of daily newspaper publishers is trying to get their audience to pay for the news uh, in digital form. Right. Because that's become absolutely necessary as digital advertising uh, proves to be a permanent disappointment. And I think that speaking of digital, maybe the final stake in the heart of the Phoenix was Craigslist because the Phoenix was huge on classifieds. They had a whole classified section. People would, a lot, I think a large share of people would pick up the Phoenix because of the classifieds. Absolutely. I mean, you think about the classifieds that the Phoenix uh, published every week, week after week after week of our band needs a bass player. I need a roommate. I want a girlfriend. I mean, uh, all of those ads really were were incredibly important to the financial health of the Phoenix. And when all all those went to Craigslist, uh, that kind of spelled the beginning of the end. Uh, virtually all of the classifieds in Craigslist are free. And if you're using income from classifieds to pay for your journalism, you just can't compete with free. And that, of course, brings us to the present question of the big uh, regional newspapers, which you are right about. And you talk about the moguls coming in and investing and trying to uh, reinvent and save these papers. We talked specifically about John Henry at the Boston Globe and Jeff Bezos at the Washington Post. Um, The Globe was giving away news free through Boston.com and through their own website, which was kind of clunky back then. I think it's gotten better. Um, and, uh, And yet the Wall Street Journal always charged for their website. And I think that because they got started in the beginning in that model, it's worked out for them. Whereas with the Globe, you know, it's kind of hard to go back to people and say, we're going to start charging you now after we gave it away for free. Right. Well, no, that's absolutely right. And you mentioned the Wall Street Journal. Um, There was a belief for a very long time that financial news was one of the very few things that you could charge for. Um, And uh, papers that were publishing news of more general interest really didn't have the ability to charge for the news. Uh, But eventually, that became, as all of the digital advertising revenues started to shrink uh, and never really worked out the way that we had hoped, uh, you saw newspaper after newspaper saying, well, uh, people may be telling us we can't charge for the news online, but we're going to have to find a way to do it. Uh, So starting really, I believe it was in 2011, uh, when the New York Times company still owned the Globe, uh, the Globe began removing free content from boston.com and moving it over to their new bostonglobe.com website, which you had to pay to access. And uh, that's been something that uh, after John Henry bought the Globe in 2013 has has been pursued pretty aggressively. And of all the different experiments that John Henry's tried, and he's tried a number of them, which we can go through if you want, mm-hmm. it's probably charging for digital news uh, that is the most promising. Um, the Globe charges a lot. Uh, once all the discounts have expired, you pay $30 a month for a digital-only subscription of the Globe. 
which really is more than just about anybody else's charging. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, the last I checked, they were on track to hit 100,000 digital-only subscribers by the end of uh, by the end of this June. And uh, they will tell you that if they can hit 200,000, the globe starts to look like a sustainable business. And I think that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the predominant core reader of the Boston Globe tend to be upwardly mobile, um, more affluent, more suburban, uh, quite frankly, wider uh, audience. Um, and and uh, that brings me to the question of whether or not the, the big regional newspapers like the Globe and like other cities you know, what is their long-term viability in that they used to have a virtual monopoly control, if you will, over the dissemination of media? I mean, the, the New York Times, I think, exemplifies it in their motto, all the news is fit to print. They would decide what was news. I mean, they were the great gatekeepers. They would decide what was fit to print. And it seems to me that in the long term, <clears throat> that model has been shattered by the Internet and by various internet news gatherers on both the left and the right, I'd point out, you know, you've got the Huffington Post and Breitbart and all the others who are really starting to develop, you know, journalist employees who are going out and doing investigative research and, and who are, in a sense, bringing the entire business back to what you talk about historically, which is when in the mid-19th century, you had Newspaper Row in Boston, and I think in other cities, we probably had about at least a, a dozen, if not more, competing newspapers. You didn't have the one behemoth, which the Globe became and has been for half a century. And I hope it, the Globe continues in, in some capacity, but I'm not sure it can be that in the future. I think it's going back to that original model. What do you think? Oh, I think that there's a, a, a lot of truth in that. There's no question about it. Uh, the Globe was always the 800-pound gorilla of Boston media. Now, I have to say, it's still the 400-pound gorilla. Uh, right. it, it's absolutely essential to uh, coverage of uh, the city and the region. Um, they're able to do far more in the way of enterprise and accountability reporting than anybody else is able to do. Uh, but what at one time was kind of a a competition between the globe and the herald uh has now fractured in many different directions um i i think that the two big public uh media companies in boston wbur and wgbh uh, obviously i work for gbh right. uh they're doing a lot of coverage now um even in its shrunken state, the Herald still manages to get to some stories that the Globe doesn't get to. Uh, you've got Commonwealth Magazine doing a lot of stuff online. You've got uh, neighborhood newspapers. You have aggregators like Universal Hub. So the, the Globe's challenge is to kind of be seen um, and, and make itself heard and felt above uh, all that noise that's coming from elsewhere. Now, you are suggesting that the old model of aggregation and gatekeeping doesn't really work anymore. Yeah. I don't think that's entirely true. Mm -hmm. I think that after 20 years of um, 
people being uh, completely distracted by all this stuff that's just coming at them. Uh, I think that we see kind of a renewed hunger for um, trained professionals to try to sort out what's important from what isn't important and, and to present that to you in a logical, thought out way. So I, I think that, and we've kind of seen this since the election of President Trump, where a lot of news organizations are seeing large increases in the number of digital subscribers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, mm -hmm. yes. big increases in digital audience uh, that we've seen with NPR. Um, so I think that people kind of see that quality as almost an antidote to fake news. And at the same time, if you're a real news junkie, I think you also like the fact that in addition to that curated, edited product, there's also still all this other stuff out there. So I don't think it's a one or the other. I think it's a both. Well, Dan, I think you and I both share a concern for the future of well-curated professional journalism. Um, and the, the question is whether or not the format for such journalism, is it going to be necessary to have that? Can the only way to support that be this big regional entity, uh, whether it be a newspaper or a conglomerate? And uh, I actually think that you can have good journalism without it. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. I mean, this is in the music business, but I interviewed um, Rock Gets Religion. It's a book by Mark Joseph. And he talks about how in the 1960s and 70s, the music business, the record companies, there was a few handful of gatekeepers who would decide who got to make a record, literally, and who got to distribute it. There people like Clive Davis and Ahmet Erdogan at, uh, at Atlantic. And they sought a particular type of musician, a certain type of look, a certain type of message. And they, they would, if you didn't match that, you didn't get a record. And that... That, that uh, paradigm's been completely shattered now, mainly by the Internet, so that you have the guys that, that Joseph writes about, conservative rockers, you know, Christian rockers, have, can now do it. They can make a living. You don't even need a record company anymore. You can do it through um, develop putting your, your material online. I've been talking to some Berkeley students who are now doing this. And, and the old model of the big record company, they're still there. They still play an important role. And I... I hope they continue to do it, but they no longer have this monopolistic entity. And I would even point to the very show that you and I are doing right now. Here I am, some, you know, schmuck in Boston, I mean, you know, doing the show that can be seen anywhere in the country. I'm building an audience. Anybody can do this, including good, responsible journalists who actually can go in and do an investigation in an in-depth way. So I don't think that the, the possibility that these big entities are losing their mojo, if they are, necessarily would co compromise the future of journalism. In the, in, on the Internet, we will all be famous to 15 people, I think, is, the, uh, is, is, is what somebody yeah. said some years ago. Okay. Uh, well, as I said, I think it's, a, uh, it, it's not an either or. It's a both and situation. Um, but I think that the continued viability of uh, big media, um, big journalism, as Breitbart would call it, 
is is very important because it isn't just the journalism, although the journalism is hugely important. It's also the mass audience and the influence that that comes with that mass audience. You know, I did my last book, The Wired City, on some smaller, hyper-local, online-only projects uh, centered in New Haven, where there's this fantastic uh, nonprofit news site called the New Haven Independent. And a lot of these small online-only projects are doing tremendous work. The question is, can they really have that much of an impact? Maybe they're reaching the leadership class in the community, but they have a very hard time reaching that mass audience, uh, which is what you need, I think, to affect change so that the great journalism that you're doing uh, ends up counting for something. Right. And also, I should point out that in Boston, we have a couple of players, both on the left and the right, who are attempting to put out a, both a print product and an online. On the left, you've got Dig Boston, Chris Farone, who's been a guest of mine. And on the right, you've got the New Boston Post. And, um, you know, they're kind of threadbare operations, but in a way, they are developing and learning how to develop a news organization that really can operate lean and mean. And it's, uh, you know, the handful of journalists who can do some in-depth things and they can do some stories that may not necessarily make the cut in terms of the big players who decide what news is fit to print. So I think that that's a very democratizing influence. And it is. And I'm glad you mentioned Dig Boston because yeah. we talked about the demise of the Phoenix as if that was the end of all weeklies in Boston. And, and in fact, uh, Dig Boston continues on in that tradition. Right. And he, they're trying to sort of re reestablish a Phoenix like um, entity and they're trying to tap into the Phoenix market. They got a way to go, but they're making an honest attempt at it. And I think it's all in the interest of this sort of broad, you know, newspaper row style that <clears throat> I think is is the way of the future. The Boston Globe is a paper that, I mean, I've been a Bostoner all my life. I'm from Quincy, but I've been in the area. And I've always loved and hated the Boston Globe. <laughs> right? I mean, I read it religiously, but not so much in recent years, I'll have to admit. I no longer pull out the broadsheet. Maybe I'm like a lot of people in that I'll glance at it online. I'll look at the I'll look at it when it's carried by various conglomerate sites like the Drudge Report, which will link to it if there's a story that's relevant. But but one of the criticisms I have of the Globe is that whether you like or hate the Globe, it captured a sense of what Boston was like. I got a feeling, and I think the sports pages still do, and they're very good. <clears throat> but I got a feeling of what was going on in in my city and what people were thinking. And I think that the Globe really doesn't do that so much anymore for me. It's sort of, I think maybe because they've lost some of the local reporting. I just, it's become more generic now and it's become more like it's, it's almost dialed in. And I think it's also become more ideological in a way as well. What, what say you? Um, well, that's a lot to uh, throw in there. Let me try to um, parse it issue by issue. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think the sense that um, your sense that it's not capturing the, by the way, I'm getting some echo in my earpieces, which makes it hard for me to, okay. to concentrate. If, if there's some way you have of turning that off. I'm sorry. Um, I think the sense that the globe doesn't 
reflect the reality of Boston the way you used to think it did. Um, I don't know. Uh, I think that that may reflect the the emergence of a very new and different kind of Boston uh, that existed when you and I were kids. I mean, it's a much more, um, it's a much younger city. Uh, it's a much more uh, black city, Latino, Asian. Mm-hmm. And I think that the globe does do a reasonably good job of reflecting that reality. Um, at the same time, the staff now, it's smaller, uh, but the staff is also very young. And so I think that it's reflecting a different type of sensibility. Um, I don't know whether that's good or bad. My suspicion is that that's good, uh, even though they don't have very many people writing for them anymore who are my age. Um, now, oh, you also said ideological. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not quite sure what you mean. You, you I, I mean, you... I, I will push back by noting that you said you don't read it that often anymore. So I'm, I'm going to I'm going to ask you what exactly you mean by more ideological. Well, I'll concede that I don't read it as regularly as I used to. Um, I think the Globe has always been left leaning, part of the what oh, we might, sure. yeah, what we might euphemistically yeah. call the Eastern Seaboard liberal establishment. Same thing with the, the New York Times and the Washington Post, and I think that. Um, They've become more openly so in the maybe in the past decade. Um, and, and for that reason, I kind of resent the idea that the globe presents itself as sort of a neutral, generic, you know, voice of the city when it's really, you know, it kind of harkens back to the early days of the American Republic when most newspapers and most media outlets were openly partisan, mm. they were openly ideological. They represented parties. I mean, and I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I mean, I just, um, in a way, they need to be upfront about it. And also the Globe, love him or hate him, Donald Trump, and I think in a sense if Bernie Sanders had won, he would have been the same. They've introduced a new kind of language that I still think that liberals don't seem to want to acknowledge. And it's, you know, the Globe has the old language, the, you know, what, what French scholar Elaine Beniscon called the totalitarian language in its style, and I'm talking more a tone than anything specific, in that their style of writing, their style of communicating is, it's indirect, it's sophistic, it's use of words that have double, triple meanings. It's not, I mean, Trump comes out, you know, whether you like him or not, and he makes you cringe sometimes. He's like your crazy uncle and all that, but he'll come out bluntly and he'll say what's on his mind. And it's none of this kind of, Posturing, and I think that that is a new means of communication that is popular and is accessible to regardless of your your ideology. But the globe adheres to that old way of communicating, and I think that that's causing it's it's dull and it's causing a a loss of of excitement in the paper, which is why I think some competition would be good for them. Okay. Um. I'm not here to defend the globe. I really don't want to do that. And in fact, there's a number of things I could say critical of the globe, especially some of the mistakes they've made on the business side. Um, I find the globe to be less ideological than it used to be. Um, they were for, they spent decades in the tank for every single Kennedy out there, except me. Uh, <laughs> I'm no relation. Uh, and and I, I have not seen that for years. 
um, they used to have uh, one of their editors used to go to Doyle's and help Ray Flynn write his speeches for him. I mean, sure. just totally inappropriate type of uh, political involvement. Uh, I think they're better about that now. Um, I don't know what on earth could possibly be in it for a mainstream newspaper that caters to a primarily suburban and liberal audience uh, to adopt any of the rhetoric of Donald Trump. When you say he says it like it is, I, I remember this wonderful New Yorker cartoon of, um, of a, uh, a, a billboard featuring a wolf saying, I will eat you. And mm -hmm. uh, there, there's, a, there's two sheep looking up at it. And one of the sheep says, I really like him. He says it like it is. <laughs> Well, I mean, the, 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 the style, though, the tone can be applied to, I suppose, a liberal paradigm. Well, why I mean, would you want to listen to that crap? I mean, I'm sorry. That's OK, uh, because regard, you know, regardless of what you think of it, it gets to, you know, what is heard is what is there. It's not this kind of like double meaning, this vague innuendo type of, of language that you know, it, it's, it, you know, I want to know what, what, what's on their minds. I want it to be up front. I want it to be there and it doesn't have to be rude. I mean, Trump can be very crude, of course. Yeah. And it can be very cruel. I know that, but th there's a, the reason he, I think he's connected is because there's a, a certain, you, you kind of know what's going on. I mean, it's a blunt thing. It's not this kind of cadence of, of, of establishment tease. Well, I'm not, I'm not even sure why you say that, because he sounds very direct, but he'll say one thing one day, and he'll say the opposite the next day, and deny that he ever said the first thing. I mean, I don't find anything direct about that. And, you know, he's not connecting. More than half the, more than 60% of the country says they're embarrassed by having him as the president. So yeah, he's connecting, he's connecting with Trump supporters, but uh, he's not connecting with anybody else. I agree. Look, I agree with that. I'm simply pointing out that the style, the tone of a, a more direct approach is something that I think that in general, media outlets, media figures, both left and right, are beginning to adopt. But the establishment doesn't quite get this yet. They still are in lo involved in this, um, you know, old way of, of communicating that I think is is you know it, it makes them not necessarily all that relevant i mean i would rather have the globe reporters and the globe the tone of the globe be just a little bit more upfront about what they're getting at and what they believe in they would connect more with you know kind of blue collar people regular people um yeah you know, i'll give you an example rush limbaugh whether you like him or not he was huge in Boston for 20 years. As a no, he wasn't. Person. No, he wasn't. This was always his worst market. Is that true? But yes. in Boston, I thought his ratings were like at the top in the city. For, he, for did okay. he did okay, but Boston was always his worst market. Well, maybe if you look at it nationally, but on a, if you look at Boston, he was the number one host for many, many years. And, and which tells me that even liberals were tired of this kind of like, way of communicating because Russia had a tendency to speak bluntly. And I think that's continued at RKO with both Howie Carr and Jeff Pooner. And I would like to see liberals get up and do this. And they are actually on, on progressive radio. I mean, there's, there's some good people coming up on that station, whether I like them or not, you know, in the opinions, they are doing, they are getting it. 
You know, yeah. they are starting to speak bluntly. They're moving beyond this kind of establishment tease style of language. And again, we're talking style here. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it just transcends left and right. I mean, this is, you know, this is more of a, a new means of, of communicating that I think um, the globe is missing. I think that the establishment is still not quite getting. Okay. So anyways. Um, I think you, we've beaten that one to death, but I, I, I hear your point. Absolutely. You do get into in the book, you, at least you touch upon it. I would have liked to have maybe heard a little bit more about some of the intersection between the big media, like the Boston Globe back in the day, and politicians. And, you know, we talked about the Kennedys and the old man Kennedy coming in with his money and helping, you know, John Kennedy go up, regardless of, I mean, he was a great president, in my opinion. That's beside the point. You know, he was helped along. Isn't that the danger that's associated with having such a big media organization, that they are going to use that influence in a way that both benefits them financially, but also promotes whatever ideology they're into? And isn't it better to have the model of many diverse sources to counter that or at least balance it? Well, remember when uh, papers like The Globe and The Washington Post, which also did a lot of this, uh, saw themselves as major political players, uh, they were doing that at a time when, in fact, they did have strong competition. Uh, so one of, I mean, I think one of the more fascinating stories um, that I've learned about in uh, writing about the history of the globe is that at one time, uh, the Kennedy family was more aligned with uh, the Herald. Um, yes. the, the Joe Kennedy helped uh, the owner of the Herald, Beanie Choate, get a uh, license to operate uh, Channel 5, which under FCC regulations, he shouldn't have been able to get. And um, Tip O'Neill actually aligned himself with the Globe and fed the Globe dirt about uh, what was going on with the FCC. Mm -hmm. And uh, exposing that was eventually what led to uh, the emergence of the Globe as the dominant uh, daily paper. But I think that what you've seen in recent decades, and I mean probably the last 50 years, as virtually every um, large daily newspaper has become uh, a one, uh, virtually every large city has become a one daily town. Right. Or, or in the case of Boston, uh, a, a city with one paper that was very much the dominant daily. Uh, you've seen... Uh, a moving away from that kind of political activism because uh, they felt a responsibility to try to serve um, all of their readers and not just uh, the readers who were aligned with them politically. So I think that we were seeing a move. We, we had a partisan press. We saw a move away from that in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And to some extent, as you say, uh, we may be moving back to that a little bit as we've seen this explosion of uh, different media outlets, which I think we've seen more on the national level than we have on the local level. But nevertheless, I think it's it's something that we tend to see everywhere. Right. And I think that also Donald Trump's complaints about fake news is obviously self-serving. He's very thin-skinned. He doesn't like to see any reporting that in any way hurts his image and he's very image conscious. 
But at the same time, it's instructive in that we ought to question uh, what the media is doing. And sometimes we, we can point to fairly consistent examples, and we have too much too much to get into today, but uh, of where they of where they have um, promoted something that turned out to be false. Um, I mean, I suppose the most recent example are these pictures that the New York Times scrubbed from their site of children in cages. And they were saying, well, Trump is putting immigrants and separating the families and putting the children in cages. And when it turned out that, that was, those pictures were taken during the Obama administration and that Obama had actually created this program, they suddenly scrubbed it. But it was, there's this desire to, to attack Trump that I think is reasonable in a, in a free society. They ought to. That, but it goes a little beyond. I mean, it's almost like a, a feeding frenzy to the point where there has been sometimes a crossing of the line into what Trump calls fake news. And um, regardless of where he's coming from, we all ought to be very careful about that. Well, you know, news organizations have been making errors since uh, their founding. And uh, the difference between um, fake news and real news isn't that real news organizations always get it right. Uh, but they uh, are, are, are accountable and they will uh, correct themselves when they're shown to be wrong. Uh, fake news at one time, it's funny, fake news is one of those great phrases that went from having a very specific meaning uh, to meaning nothing at all in a matter of months. Uh, because when, I mean, my first exposure to the modern meaning of fake news was probably in the summer of 2016 when the New York Times Magazine uh, did a big story on the rise of fake news. And what they were referring to then was this deliberately fake stuff being created, a lot of it by teenagers in Macedonia uh, for profit. Because what would happen is that, um, you know, it's designed to get some clicks and people right. see your Google ads, you make a few cents. If you're a teenager in Macedonia, making a few cents from uh, Google is a worthwhile endeavor. Uh, mm. My favorite story about the early definition of fake news is we've all heard the story that, uh, that there were fake news stories that Pope Francis had endorsed Donald Trump. Mm. Well, what often gets left out of that was that Earlier, a lot of these fake news sites reported, I say reported, uh, that the Pope had endorsed Hillary Clinton. And those were not getting the page views that they wanted, so they weren't making any money. So right. they said, well, okay, let's try having him endorse Donald Trump and see what happens. And all of a sudden, there were all kinds of page views, and the money starts rolling in. Wow. And, uh, and so if you're a fake news purveyor, they started to realize that uh, well, gee, it looks like followers of Donald Trump are more easily swayed by this stuff than followers of Hillary Clinton. But within a matter of months, fake news just came to mean anything you didn't like. And so it really doesn't mean much of anything today. Well, I'll, yeah. tell you, I'll tell you a funny story while we're talking about fake news. Okay. I was uh, looking through some old notes um, recently. Uh, because I was going to be talking about fake news. Mm -hmm. And I came across some uh, lecture notes from 2014. And I said, how is this possible? Nobody was talking about fake news in 2014. And I opened up the file and I saw that I was talking about John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. 
So you see that the meaning of these things shifts dramatically over time. Right. Although I would argue, regardless of the word we give it, people both on the right and on the left have been talking about fake news for a long time. You know, and a lot of that has to do not so much with news that's covered, but with news that's not covered. Yeah. I mean, the left comes out with this annual list of stories that they would argue have been suppressed, some of which they're right about, others not so right. But the point is that it's an issue that goes way back. And I think that the fact that it's now coming into the forefront, regardless of the fact that Trump is totally self-interested and we get that, it's an important instructive moment for people to really ask what is true and to look at news with what we might euphemistically call a third eye and, uh, and ask ourselves, what is going on here? How real is this? How much is this tainted by the political orientation of the, the source of it and, and whatnot? Because that's, that has to be seen as part of it. And uh, the Russian bots is another thing. I mean, that's come out in congressional testimony that these Russian uh, attempts to influence not just elections, but the culture has included fanning racist flames during instances. I mean, during the Trayvon Martin incident and the uh, Ferguson incident, they were like fanning the flames on both sides as a way to create division in, in our society. And this, of course, is harkens back to the old Soviet times, which obviously they haven't uh, changed their ways in some cases. No, that's right. That's absolutely right. And it's a uh, it's a real problem. And, uh, you know, we are slowly seeing Facebook um, reacting to this and trying to do something about it. But um, I don't think they quite know what to do about it. And and it is a, a continuing and ongoing uh, problem. I pick on Facebook, even though Twitter is just as much of a um, cesspool for this stuff, uh, because yeah. Facebook is just so much more influential than Twitter is. For sure. And the question is, how can Facebook deal with like censoring out real problems of fake news or things like incitement and, and, and the stuff that really we expect them to do without at the same time taking it the next step and censoring out opinion and censoring out, um, uh, you know, the free ex expression of ideas. And that's something that, I mean, th th there's a lot going on with that. I mean, they need to grapple with it. There is, and there is a way to do it. And, and that's why I am very concerned about trying to preserve that original meaning of fake news as much as we can, uh, mm. because I think that if if any legitimate or semi-legitimate outlet uh, promotes a story that turns out to be false, that's not fake news. And I think that uh, fa Facebook tries to act against that at its peril. Uh, but the the, the Macedonian content farms, the Russian bots. Mm. I think you can target that stuff and just say, we're not going to let that stuff get on our site. And to me, if you can find a way to do that, I don't really see why anyone on the left or the right would be particularly disturbed by that. I agree. Um, but, but, but then you see people start to say, well, they shouldn't post anything from Breitbart. Well, I, I think Breitbart is a sewer, but you can't start banning stuff from Breitbart because now you are starting to censor free speech. Well, that's that's the issue. And there's been and I don't know if it's in any way substantiated, but Breitbart and some other sites, Western journalism, 
uh, Sarah Palin, some other conservative uh, bloggers, writers, they are claiming that their numbers have dropped since these um, programs have been put in both by Facebook and Twitter and Google as well. And that's troubling. I mean, I, I when I started the show, I was assuming, oh, this is a great wild west of media. I can yep. build an audience. And now I'm worried. I'm wondering, are they going to be, you know, putting my name last? Or are they going to be doing these analytic uh, you know, techniques that make sure that, that, that I don't, um, when I send out a, um, a notice on my Facebook account, which has I'm probably close to 10,000 followers. Am I, is, are they really going to reach the destinations? And this is stuff that's coming out in the congressional testimony. And that's troubling to me. Uh, you know, I would hope that, that, that liberals who care about uh, civil liberties would also be concerned. We have to keep a very close eye on that. At the same time, though, uh, the reason that Sarah Palin's numbers dropped and a few others is that um, their message was being uh, amplified and spread by Russian bots. And okay. as there has been an attempt to crack down on the Russian bots, uh, their numbers are naturally going to drop. Uh, but the fact that you can have a, a, a significant Facebook presence and you have no idea whether the algorithm is actually going to serve it up to the people who are following you or not, uh, that's, that's a real dilemma. That yeah. is a real dilemma. You know, to kind of get back to, uh, this is related, but to kind of get back to one of the things I talk about in The Return of the Moguls is um, you see newspapers really embracing electronic newsletters. Uh, right. The Washington Post does it. Everybody does it. But the Washington Post operation is unusually sophisticated. Yeah. And one of the reasons that newspapers have embraced electronic newsletters so much is that it makes them less dependent on Facebook. And, you know, with Facebook, with its policies of, oh, we're your partner and your friend today. And then tomorrow, oh, we're going to downplay what you're serving up in favor of uh, family and friends type of posts. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that news organizations are always very wary of what Facebook is going to do next, which is why it's really important to try to reclaim as much of the distribution of their content for themselves as they can. Right. And I know this might sound a little undemocratic of me to say, but I actually think that Facebook and Google and these mega, mega servers, which really have a, a large grip of control over the Internet, that, that they should be looked at by antitrust regulators. I mean, this is like, you know, the, uh, the old days of um, Theodore Roosevelt busting, busting up Standard Oil. You know, they really have, and not to mention the, the privatization of, of Ma Bell in the 1980s and yeah. 90s, which led to a tremendous uh, competition between telecommunications companies and a, and a drop in the cost of uh, long distance phone calls. I would hope that they might take a look at this because it seems to me that, that you know you get a couple of players who are really controlling the game, and it does bring up questions of monopoly. It does, and I would love to see antitrust law applied to this, uh, but I think it would be a real problem because antitrust law is based on uh, monopolies that cost consumers real money. Uh, what was your Facebook fee last month? I'm pretty sure right. mine was zero. <laughs> That's so, true. That, so that becomes a problem. There's almost no legal hook that antitrust law can attach itself to uh, to take a look at these monopolies, even though 
uh, for the good of society, they probably should. Okay, so my guest is Dan Kennedy, the book, and I'm holding it up. Thank you. Moguls. <laughs> you go, Dan. Excellent book. I cannot recommend it more highly. It's a great insight into both the the history of of, of the big city papers and and the the me, and the media moguls, how they're coming into the scene now and trying to rise in like like on a white horse to rescue media and redefine it. Some successfully, some not so successfully. You get into the business model. Yet, Dan, I will as we're reaching the end, I will point out that. You very honestly, and I think very rightfully, you don't draw any conclusions with regard to where you think the future lies for the big regional media conglomerates and papers. So I'm going to ask you, where do you think the future lies? Well, you know, it's very difficult to look into the long term future. I think for the medium term future, uh, probably the, the one to watch more closely than any any of the others, is what John Henry is doing at the Boston Globe. And it's not sexy. As I said earlier, Mm -hmm. it's just a matter of trying to get readers to pay as much as he can convince them to pay uh, for the digital product. Uh, Because everything else has failed. I mean, digital advertising has not worked. And as a result of that, free journalism has not worked. I think the biggest challenge facing these large regional papers going forward is that even the digital subscription model tends to appeal to an older reader who likes that combination of international, national, local news, sports, business. Um, I'm not sure that the next generation wants to get their news that way. They tend to focus in on a few topics that are of great interest to them, and then they go deep on those topics. So in addition to, I I think the transition from print to digital is almost less interesting and also less of a threat than the transition from aggregation to disaggregation. And that's a trend that's only going to continue. Um, Jeff Bezos says, People won't pay for an individual article, but he thinks they will pay for a bundle. And that's what people like Bezos and John Henry have kind of bet the farm on. But will that continue with um, younger readers beginning to get older? Are they going to want that bundle or are they going to want to consume their news in a different way as they have been doing? I think that's what the big challenge is going to be. And also, it doesn't seem like they want to look at the old broadsheet. I would imagine that that's going to go the way of the dodo bird at some point. I don't know. I hope not, but I I still like it. I don't. (laughs) And I'm older than you. I honestly Um, don't look at it every day anymore, but I like to once in a while pick up the old, you know, pull out the old paper and open it up. But I, I, I imagine that younger people I talk to don't, so. We get, the, uh, we get the Sunday Globe and the Sunday Times in print. I don't mm-hmm. even look at them. I prefer to read online, okay. and I read digital the rest of the week. And I actually, unlike you, I will read pretty deeply into the Globe and the New York Times and the Washington Post, uh, but I'm doing it all online. Well, I like the Washington Post. I've really taken to that online. They're doing a very good job. And the New York Times, I, I, you know, I look at it. I look at the headlines, and 
I find it to be generally the tone sort of dreary for me, but but I appreciate it. Anyways, Dan, listen, I really want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. The author of The Return of the Moguls. I recommend it highly. Dan, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chuck. A lot of fun. Okay, take care.